From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. And then suddenly last call hits and this is transition period where everyone's gone, it's quiet. And it's up to you how you what you do with that energy. It can be negative, it can be positive, it can right. be just something you let pass. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And welcome to day three of our Drinks Week, where we're sitting down with leading cocktail and wine authors. And you just heard from today's guest, Brad Thomas Parsons. Now, Brad is the author of several cocktail books, including Bitters, A Spirited History of a Classic Cure-All, which won both the James Beard and International Association of Culinary Professionals Cookbook Awards. He also wrote Amaro, The Spirited World of Bittersweet Herbal Liqueurs, and a super fun volume titled Distillery Cats, Profiles in Courage of the World's Most Spirited Mousers. And in his latest book, he asks a variant of the age-old last meal question to bartenders across the country— what would your last drink be? The book is titled Last Call, Bartenders on Their Final Drink and the Wisdom and Rituals of Closing Time. In today's show, we'll talk with Brad about how he got his start in the drinks world, all about last calls, and of course, we'll play a cocktail game at the end of this episode. Plus, we've got recipes from Brad's last call, and Celia Sack from Omnivore Books joins us. All of that today on Drinks Week at Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco. Francisco, where Brad Thomas Parsons joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're here to talk about your latest book because I feel like it's a hot day and a refreshing cocktail yes. sounds nice. <laughs> um, and we're here to talk about your latest book, which is called Last Call, mm-hmm. Bartenders on Their Final Drink and the Wisdom and Rituals of Closing Time. So we'll come back to the book in a okay. minute, um, but I want to start more just by talking about you and sure. sort of your career and the trajectory that that um, you've had. I read that you worked um, at a bar when you were younger. Is, yes. is this high school? Am <laughs> no, I my co- that right? Or college? My college summers and then a little bit after. But yeah, it was, it was, it was like a beach bar. Is that Harpoon right? Eddie's okay. in uh, <laughs> Sylvan Beach, New York and in, in central New York, which doesn't really smack of a beach community. There's a restaurant called Eddie's, which is, I think, at least 75 years old or more. And I went to school with a family. Um, the, okay. the kids, I think it was their third generation at that point. All my friends worked there as waiters, and and I knew I wouldn't be a good waiter, but I got a job at the beach. A lot of kids got summer jobs at the beach. Sure. And I was working at a clothing store, and then this bar, Harpoon Eddie's, was across the park, and you could hear the music and see the volleyballs flying around and the people having fun, and I was like folding Ocean Pacific shorts, and I was like, I want to go over there. And so I talked my way into uh, getting a job, but I was in the kitchen. So I was a like a, a fry cook for the first summer. Okay. And then everyone got to wear shorts except the people in the kitchen. So they all had like <laughs> black pants and white polos. And so I still wasn't it's getting that, that dream <laughs> beach job. And I was sweaty and greasy. Right. Mastering chicken wings and a lot of fried foods. And then uh-huh. I worked my way up to runner, which was like out in public, bringing food out and being a bar back of sorts. And then eventually a bartender. Uh, mind you, this was late eighties, early nineties. So. Sure. Everything was coming out of mixes and guns and, yep. and, um, we did have a bottle of bitters that was touched just for one regular who always got a Manhattan. Uh-huh. Um, it was just banging out high volume Cape Codders, vodka sodas, right. pitchers of beer. I love, I really enjoyed it, but I was, I was never one of those bartenders that was the good. I was good when it was fast and, and busy. I was, I'm a, I have a good personality, I think, but I, 
didn't love when it was slow and you had to really engage with people. Like I, not that I'm not friendly, but I just, sure. I enjoyed the heads down, hands on, repetitive aspect of it. Um, so I wasn't like creating drinks or anything. It was really just a cool summer job. And then, mm-hmm. When I went to college, I would come back home and do it every summer. And it was a seasonal bar. They closed in winter. And so then I had a summer or a year between undergrad and graduate school. And I helped them out that summer as, as well. So, yeah. So, it's like that. that's the only time I professionally worked behind the bar. And okay. I, I sort of, when I do events now, people say, well, do you want to guest bartend? And I was like, <laughs> well, I can guest stand behind the bar. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we, I can do things like do tastings or I can develop recipes and, and create recipes. But um, especially with this book, Last Call, um, just embedding myself with bartenders was a wake-up call of, you know, it's definitely a young person's game. And uh, mm. and the physical and emotional and mental toll, um, I could never take that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, you, you worked there, what, like three or four summers, something like yeah, that? Four, four or five four. summers. Okay. Yeah, like college years. And you weren't like, I'm going to go be a bartender now, because at the same time, you're studying your fiction writing well, yeah, degree, was, is that right? Yeah, I... I, well, I had a wake up call thinking like, I know a little something about bartending. And then when I had that, uh, year between school and grad school. Okay. I did like look to the bigger bars in Syracuse and I didn't, ha- I had that Sylvan Beach experience that didn't really ring true. So I realized like, okay, I'm not really, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, go all in and try to be a bartender after that. Sure. And so yes, I, that was just a f- cool, fun job. And then I was studying in school, English, writing arts, and as a double major with theater, directing and playwriting. And then I went to grad school for an MFA in fiction. I mean, in terms of what got me into food and, and drink, that was really like, it's, it was the nascent days of the Food Network. And, and mm-hmm. I was in New York when it was happening. And it, I just distinctly remember watching that. And it was an echo back to like watching the PBS cooking shows with my dad on weekends. And right. I really got into food then. And I remember reading Ruth Reichel's reviews and saving up money and going to the restaurants. So that was when I became aware of like, this is something really interests me. This uh, is while you're in grad school? I was in grad school, okay. yeah. This is the mid-90s. And then after that, I moved to Seattle, where I eventually became... Um, I worked at Amazon.com for over a decade, and I was the cookbook editor there. So yeah. then it became sort of having access to every cookbook and interviewing everyone from Ina Garten to Anthony Bourdain to David Chang, um, Michael Ruhlman, on and on. Thinking of it as a professional way and wanting to be a food writer. sort of, And, and, and it was hard, because Amazon's a very... You know, like many tech jobs, it's, you don't do anything else but work there. Right. And eventually near the end of my tenure there, I approached one of the local magazines, um, there's Seattle Magazine and Seattle Met wanting to like write food articles. And this was about 2007 or eight. And they were like, well, you know, cocktails are big. We need somebody to do cocktails. And so I threw my hat in the ring and started writing about those just before the market dropped out and the editors all started writing themselves rather than freelancing. But that was my right. first, you know, I found like with my writing career, especially the early days, it's like finding a beat that needs cover was more important than saying, I'm going to be a food writer. And right. like I was into drinks, I knew a lot about drinks, but um, to think about, oh, you know, instead of writing about regional food I grew up with or, you know, behind the scenes with a chef, suddenly I can have access to bartenders and that opened a whole other thing from history to technique to uh, behind the scenes stories, trend pieces, all of that. Yeah. It sort of fell into place that you became a drinks writer then. Yeah. And I think it was the second or thir- second story I wrote was on bitters and uh-huh. uh, this little 500 words piece that I over-researched and became obsessed with. And right. 
realized there's not a book out there on the topic and put my flag in the sand and spent that summer writing the proposal. And so it kind of happened fast from there. Like I only had two or three bylines and then got a book deal. And it's interesting that there wasn't really a bitters book at that time because bitters are so important to cocktail creation. Yeah. Well, at that time, you know, we were sort of, it was a ghost town. They went, you know, there, there were some older pamphlets, reproductions from Angostura and things out there. Right. But, um, and it was just, a passing glance in most cocktail books like Angostura, Peychaud. This was when orange, you know, we're fortunate now to have dozens of orange bitters. And back then it was hard to find one orange bitters. And so, so suddenly there was this, they were everywhere. And, and so I was just really curious of what is their story? What is all about them? So, um, so there's a lot of information online, different blogs, different things. And so I thought this is a good opportunity to take all this information, learn as much as I can. And, and distill it and make it appeal to bartenders and geeks, but also cocktail geeks, but also help ex- demystify it is the word I use a lot for some of my books. And yeah. take a, take a confusing, complicated topic and explain, you know, so essentially, and, and Amara was the same way where, you know, which was your second book, my second book. Yeah. So they were sort of, you know, I hate to say like trendy because they are elemental parts of cocktail history and cocktail making, um, bitters are, and they suddenly went from, you know, post prohibition, there was a dearth of, of bitters. There weren't many around at all. And then suddenly people started to make their own, more becoming available. And we went from having a handful to having a dozen and then two dozen and three dozen. And right. Yeah. And both of those books, your first two books, Bitters and Amaro, mm-hmm. I think are both sort of like, they're interesting because they're both ingredients that you can easily sort of incorporate into your home drink making mm-hmm. routine to sort of elevate your game a little bit, right? Like if you want to make cocktails, Absolutely. simply the addition of bitters can actually elevate what you're doing quite significantly. And then Amaro, you know, same sort of just like a single ingredient that can sort of be really versatile. Yeah, the both of the bitters and Amaro share a lot of the same ingredients to make them. It's just um, you have non-potable, not meant to be consumed, Right. uses a flavor ingredient, which are bitters, and then potable, which is Amaro. So they're both related to digestion, and um, we're both used as medicine before they became enjoyed, used for pleasure and consumption. And um, yeah, so bitters, like it's it's in the original definition of the word cocktail, you know, sugar, water, right. spirits, bitters. Yeah, like if you're making Manhattan's old fashions, I mean, you need bitters, you know, and, and I talk about it in that first book where, you know, make a Manhattan without it and make it with it, put them side by side, something's off. You know, it doesn't necessarily add bitterness. It It's a flavoring, it's aromatics, it's um, bringing disparate ingredients together, helping marry them. It's a seasoning. It's a liquid seasoning that just like salt in a soup or in a dish where something's missing, give it a little oomph. While Amaro, it isn't necessary to have that, but it's great to have it. And you think a lot of drinks that are now popular, like the Negroni and mm-hmm. and um, the kind of spritz culture, right? those are all lightly bitter aperitivo style. And then there's the um, post-meal digestivo style. Sure. You mentioned, you said you were in grad school in New York City, mm-hmm. sort of the heyday of Food Network, and you remembered sort of hearkening back to watching PBS cooking shows with yes. your dad. And you worked at this bar, this beach bar. Yeah. You didn't think you were going to be a bartender, but I think your dad had a pretty big influence on you. Your your dad has passed away yes. on, particularly around drinking, right? Like he spent a lot of time at bars. He sort of introduced you to the atmospheres that you might find in a bar. Yeah, he... My, you know, my sister always says, like, you always talk about dad at bars. It sounds awful, but you know, it's not. It's, this was more, it was very much part of socializing. It right. was, you know, he was a blue collar airline mechanic. Okay. He often worked the night shift and, and then, but then when he started coming home a certain at like around five o'clock, you know, you knew on a Friday, 
it was a small town and there were a handful of different bars he would frequent. Um, whether it was the American Legion or this place called the White Elephant, Graziano's, the Three Pines. And to me, those are like touchstones of my teen years of. Sure. Because, you know, not that I was drinking, but you could have a teenager in a bar then without causing much trouble. <laughs> right, right. You know, having a soda and uh-huh. playing the jukebox or playing darts. And yeah, a lot of the parallels I get into in my writing with my father is when you're younger, you're like, oh, come on, let's go. Or I don't want to be there. What do you get out of this sitting here by yourself? And then cut to I'm now an old, older middle aged, middle aged guy. And I'm at bars by myself and I think, wow, I'm, you know, I see those parallels where, you know, the bar is about a community and those bartenders make you feel special. Um, whether you're regular being the, the routines of it, you know, like in, and especially in last call, a lot of that came through in terms of just seeing, you know, when you see a, a pull tab machine or, you know, where you, a lot of private bars will have where they, you gamble and there's like pull tabs and, uh, or a jukebox playing sure. the doors is a certain sense of memory. Um, certain like nuts or popcorn on the bar and right to me it was a little at times it was intimidating when i was younger like um you know these kind of whether not the volume but just sort of the conversations or the the teasing nature of yeah and and but often i was like as i talk about sometimes i it was usually I was trying to find him to borrow some money or to go out you know borrow the car or something <laughs> right and um, so yeah. it wasn't like sitting with him for hours but also like that kind of eating you know getting takeout and coming home with it because he after my parents were divorced he lived alone and so I just, I, I really, and I go home now, when I see those bars, you know, I, I think of him and, and seeing some of them are closed now. And, 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 yeah. and there was, they used to have, um, beer, they call it like beer chips or drink chips, these right. little plastic chips where a lot of times it was two for one or if someone buys you a drink and you can't drink it, then you get this cool branded chip with like the name of the bar and the, the value on the back. So like okay. beer, shot, cocktail. Like a and, little gift card. Yeah. And so he had like, an ashtray full of these on his dresser because he's had so many of like people buying him drinks he could never drink. Sure. And when he passed away, there was one thing I kind of kept and I, I wrote a story about that for Punch and then I haven't done it yet, but I always wanted to sort of recreate a bar crawl back in upstate New York with those chips. You know, they certainly would cash them in now, but they're, they're <laughs> right. quite old, but just, um, the idea of like, uh, phantom bar crawl of sorts, um, with him or something, you know, but yeah, but yeah when I definitely, when I have a Miller Lite in a bottle, when I, He's the guy I mentally like cheers or think of when I'm alone at a bar, like whether it's a wish you were here or sure. wow, he would have liked this. And he didn't live to see any of my books. And so mm-hmm. I kind of, I, th- I think he would be, would have been proud yeah. of those, especially cause he, you know, there was a brief time where I worked at a bookstore and he just loved that work in a bookstore. So he loved reading and, and you could sign out books and take him home. And right. so, so I think that going full circle would be, would have been very, very interesting. Yeah. But, but yeah, so he, like a lot of guys of a certain generation, you know, going to a bar was part of his, his culture and, and he was a divorcee and lived alone and that was his socializing you know yeah. it was like um catching up on things uh watching sports you know the american legion especially would have like barbecues or clam bakes and and i was always a part of those on the periphery and uh and i have good memories of those for sure yeah so yeah you wrote that piece the art it's called the art of drinking alone yes for punch yeah um and then the the book last call your mm-hmm. new book also sort of opens up with a similar scene right you find yes. yourself <laughs> alone at prime meets the, mm-hmm. in new york city which is is now no longer, no longer. Uh, unfortunately and and realize that the bar has closed and that that last call has taken place was a moment like that what inspired you to write this book or how did you yeah. decide that you would approach a book you know, in this I, way i also wrote a book called distillery catch which is sort of right, so which I love. it's a fun passion project but it's 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 my fantastic mr fox to my you know royal <laughs> tenenbaums and rushmore books right. and and um if, so 
after a bitters and amaro everyone was like okay what's next vermouth or aqua v and it just mm, it yeah. was it wasn't about throwing a dart at the wall coming up with a single subject for the sake of it it's something i want to spend time with and be obsessed obsess over and be passionate about and i but i knew i didn't want it to just be another single subject book and that night you you mentioned you know i was out with so prime meats was uh it, it's it's closed, but it's, it transitioned to a different bar. It's now yeah. called Frank's Wine Bar, but it was a really special place. This, um, Germanic Alpine style bar that you could pop in and have a drink. You could have a great dinner. And it was where I had dates, meetings, uh, parties, everything. You know, I had book parties there. And so that particular night I was out with several friends. They were all coupled up and we had dinner and then moved to the bar. They took off on their merry ways, went home and, and I was kind of feeling a little sorry for myself at the bar having a a beer or whiskey. I think it was whiskey at that point. And, okay. And I said, you know, I looked up at one point and said, you know, I should let you close up. You know, it's getting late. And he's like, we closed up two hours ago. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, it was this wake up call of, I haven't closed down a bar in years, you know, like, right. like, and so you suddenly see things where you're in the bar and, you know, the light, the lighting is great. The music's cool. Food smells great. Then suddenly, like, it's like a, I use the analogy of like a, a theater stage where mm-hmm. the house lights come on and they have bare light bulbs on the stage and, and it's echoey and, you know, the music changed to Tom Waits and, and the door is locked. And I just kind of, so that really stuck with me. And, and about a week or so later, I just opened an email draft and wrote last call as the subject. And, and I said, I don't know what I'm, this is going to be, but, I want this to be something. And, and I normally don't, um, talk about a book idea with anyone but my agent until the proposal's written. Okay. But, but yeah. that week I was having a drinks with my publisher from 10 Speed Press and he was in New York. I went to Dante having a Gronies and I thought your elevator pitches are risky because you can, sure. if you don't sell them on it, then you're, it's done. <laughs> right, sort of right. thing. And so rather than a formal 50 page proposal, I was just sort of saying, Hey, so he said to you, Hey, what's next? And, I said, last call. And he kind of immediately had him hooked of just those two words. And then, so I said, you know, instead of asking chefs what their final meal is, I want to ask bartenders what their final drink would be. Mm-hmm. And through that, tell these stories. And so right then we start, he had like, we had like open cocktail napkin. He was kind of sketching like a template of, okay, we got a photo of this, that, this. Right. The book changed a lot since then, but like it's, so the book sort of the through line is this seemingly, parlor game like question right but the answers were quite revealing um of some are funny some are mournful some are melancholy and this kind of theme developed and uh the book sort of went a different way it became almost more existential it wasn't just you know desert island drink my publisher pushed me to go deeper into why they're picking these drinks what do they mean and you know, what is your first memory of this drink and who was it with? And, and that sparked a lot of conversations. And so I, I didn't quite lead the jury, but on its own, you know, it's talking about late night at a bar and in the current climate of bartender wellness and, and, and mm-hmm. people being more transparent about issues. A lot of things came out, you know, whether it was bartenders who had committed suicide or, drug issues and you're dealing with a, a vice you're selling a drug every night and right. not a great analogy but like as an author promoting a book you're on you know like you're on all like a bartender's on all night but sure. they're they're giving themselves they're giving booze and, and drinks and they're listening whether it's compliments insults there's th- so much energy they're soaking up and that affects you that stays with you and then suddenly last call hits and this is transition period where everyone's gone it's quiet 
And it's up to you how you, what you do with that energy. It can be negative. It can be positive. It can right. be just something you let pass and you just have to be silent. Some people walk home at night and, and working on this book, um, with my photographer at Anderson, like we got to be, yeah. we got a real taste of that. Like being on the road took a toll on us. Um, you know, we're both older guys and it's kind of a, we joke this is a younger person's book, but, um, being among bartenders late at night for days on end and just living and breathing bar culture. You know, we we were mentally and physically exhausted as well. Yeah. So in the end of it. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Brad Thomas Parsons, author of Last Call. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Brad Thomas Parsons, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash salt a-n-d spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the upcoming issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies, on how they're speaking out on behalf of women in minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories of how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. And now, back to our conversation with Brad Thomas Parsons, author of Last Call, Bartenders on Their Final Drink, and the Wisdom and Rituals of Closing Time. I mean, you visit, I think, like three dozen bars across the country, bartenders. Overall, we, you know, originally the book was going to be 50 profiles, but the photography was, there's over 300 photos. So we went ultimately to, you know, at least 80 locations. Like, there's a lot of bars photographed that aren't profiled. Like I think at least 15, 16 states, 23 or 25 cities. Yeah. Um, we found that like every city could warn its own book, you know, right. uh, yeah. you know, once you're there, you're like, Oh, you have to go here, here, here and here. And, and so we hadn't, we had too much material to, you know, it's overwhelming. And, yeah. and, um, so it's not a bar in every state, bar in every city. It's a very sure. personalized, um, you know, I call it a mixtape. It's like a tape I put together. It's not just, you know, star tenders. There's people you've never heard of. There's right. dive bars. There's historic restaurant bars. There's people from 23 to 70 in there. Right. And, and so I try to, um, really focus on that, not just have the boldface names that would help sell a book. They're in, there's plenty in there, yeah. but, <laughs> right. but there's people or bars hopefully you've never heard of and, and maybe you'll be inspired to check it out. Yeah. Were there things that surprised you in this book? And you said not, you know, not sort of your like frilly and the drink. I think there's like a strawberry daiquiri in here or something. Somebody, some guy. In terms of the choices? I'm mean? trying to remember. I was Trick Dog right here. Yeah. It was, was it Trick Dog? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in San Francisco here. Either about the choices or just about what you heard from people that surprised you as a person who's yeah. written several cocktail books. Well, I think, I think in terms of the drink choices, you know, it's not right. just the same recipe over and over. And originally going into it, you might, as you might expect, it was a lot of beer and shots and things. Mm-hmm. And then being a book that you want to sell, it's important to have recipes. There was some, you know, you know like the strawberry daiquiri and, yes, and, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. And that could be like, you know, it's, or something where, 
I can't remember exactly what Josh's story was with that, but I think it was something he used to make in a bar he worked at, and he took it, made his version of the best one. So instead of a crappy mix, it was all great stuff. But right. yeah, like some bartenders picked like their their own drink, like something they created that means a lot to them. Uh-huh. And throughout the book too, we added in many cases a drink they're known for. So in case like Jeffrey Morgenthaler from Portland, Oregon, he um, picked. A, a glass of vodka over ice, you know, that right. was because at the end of the night, um, most bartenders have burned the ice, as they say, where, you know, you pour hot water over the ice. It's the, it's the sinks are empty. You're not going to be making drinks or shaking drinks. And so he would pour that glass of vodka, put it in the freezer and be waiting for him. But he's known for, um, his take on elevating some seventies era drinks like Amaretto Sour and the Grasshopper. Mm-hmm. So we had his Grasshopper recipe in there okay. or Toby yeah. Cicchini. We added his Cosmopolitan. Sure. Um, but yeah, when you look at the, it's, it's not that the recipes are an afterthought in this book, but this isn't a book you go to. The recipes are great and they're fun to have, but yeah. you're going here for the stories and the photos. And when you look at the, f- the drink list, it's a disparate, you know, uh, mix of things right. you know there's there's 50 50 shots there's right classic cocktails there's frozen drink two different frozen drinks strawberry daiquiri grasshopper uh-huh um so it's so it's not the kind of a to z cocktail book it's um, right it's not the, a bible yeah in all my other books you, know, you have like a 500 word head note telling a story of the drink in this case you have a whole st- you already have the story. So it's just, right. here's the recipe. So it's even like the cover shot, that old fashioned, yeah. you know, that's a husband and wife, um, Andrew and Brianna Volk in Portland, Maine. That was the drink. That was her pick, but that's her husband serving her because it's an allusion to when he was courting her, you know, she, he made her old fashions and, okay. and always made sure when she walked in the bar, one was ready for her. So uh-huh. there's a little love story to that one. And, and I, I like that element too. Like I didn't know that when, before I knew them, I would never have known that, you know, that's why they picked that drink. So you make this analogy to like theater, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a bar being a, a performance space, you say, yes. and, and you also say that you as the, well, you as the patron, like you as the person at the bar yeah. enjoying the atmosphere is not just a passive audience member, but is a featured player, especially come, come last call. And you mm-hmm. talked about this sort of, um, duality of last call. It can be happy or it can be sad depending on how you're, you, you sort of approach it. How do you think about that term last call? Like, does it, it, it does have, it is a weighty term, right? It's, it yeah. feels sort of final. Well, when sense. you're younger, it's in college, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the, the worst, the end of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the fun's over. Now we have to find somewhere else to drink. <laughs> right. And it's, the classic, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. You know, like the semi-sonic yes. song. It's exactly. It's, it, it's so it is. It's a sad time. Um, in terms of like, wow, we can't drink anymore. Right. The fun is over, or you know, the when the lights come up and kind of find whoever you're going to pair off with, sort of thing. But I think as you get in the real world, I think once you. You know, most civilians aren't experiencing last call, you know, like, like sure. unless they're closing super early. Um, sure. a lot of places do close at midnight or 11 where they would say, Hey, we're not serving anything right now, but there's no bells and things, you know, so the book does have a lot of traditions and bells. And to, yeah, to me, it was, it's, it, to me, it's more philosophical. Like I definitely, especially with this book, I've experienced a lot of actual last calls and, yeah. and been there when, you know, time to go and, and sort of watch that happen and, and see what's happening in the room. But more and more, it is about, let's close up and get home. It's not about, and, and I've been to the one thing I have noticed, like when you are at a bar that's closing down, 
and it's usually not a good bar that would do this, but when they start closing down in front of you while oh, you're right. still there, yeah. you really feel the unwel- mops come out. Yeah, you yeah. feel unwelcome where like you know the garnishes are put away, everything's put away. Yeah. You, you feel a little unwanted. So I think so that's the thing. Like they really have to keep that show going until you know it's last call folks and 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 there's so much to you know, being someone a professional bar fly, I guess, you know, I'm 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 privy to a lot of the, the bartender handshakes and the welcome shots and the goodbye shots and sure. and so that's a special thing to be a part of you know it's yeah. like it's a good not the heady pirates and all of that stuff but just a sense of community i like with that where you know i know if i'm coming in from manhattan late at night and i go by my favorite local brooklyn bar and if and even there's a restaurant near my apartment and they're not open super late but if it's 10 10 or 11 and i see there's they're still standing at the bar like i might knock on the window and have a glass of natural wine with them or something right you know it's not about a beer and a shot sort of thing it's just about hey how was your day and and you know everyone's up let's talk um right and I, I think, you know, there is the sad side of it, like, you know, the sad, lonely people still there sort of thing. But I, I see less and less of that when I was out and more just people catching one last drink before they're heading home. Yeah. Um, but you never know, too. You never know what people are going home to, whether they're working or a guest. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to ask, because we're a show on cookbooks, and you talked about working as the cookbook editor at Amazon. Yes. If there are things you learned about cookbooks or experiences that you had that sort of opened your eyes to parts of the industry that were interesting to you. So when I first got into it, like suddenly having access to so many cookbooks just got me very excited and, and, and seeing now I'm as an author, I hate galleys. Like when you see mm. a black and white, so a galley, as many of your listeners probably know, is a, is usually, is for the media right. and, 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 um, bookstores. It's a paperback version, black and white. On the other side, when I got a paperback, when I got something like that eight months before it came out, I was so excited. Like, sure. like I have, Momofuku before anyone else does, or I have <laughs> <Right>. this book. <laughs> right. And now people say like, Oh, your book's in black and white, your book's in paper. And I hate it. So, yeah. so back then I think like when I lived in Seattle, I definitely entertained a lot more and I was really into it. So it was more of an adventure for me in terms of every book. I would try some recipes. And now, you know, I find like, like I've had, I had hundreds and hundreds of cookbooks and I had to call a lot through moves and sure. just reality of life. Just like, I don't need all of these. And, sure. and so now the ones I have are special or to, to me for certain reasons. But the, I'd say the biggest change, and I worked in cookbook publishing too for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I was a marketing for like four years. I think I was a marketing director for two different publishing houses okay. on the culinary side. And culinary now is lifestyle, you know, and, right. and, you know, like when I was hired, uh, you know, it was for my expertise in cookbooks. Then suddenly I was seeing it was about diets and wellness and uh-huh. gut health and things that I'm like, you know, I, I had the, I had the privilege of working on like Mike Salomonov's first book, Zahav. I helped uh-huh. with the marketing on that. And that was a kind of, that's the kind of book that excites me. You know, it tells a story, beautiful recipes, great, great design. And I know lifestyle sells and that's an important part of it. So I would say the biggest change I've witnessed is, is, a cookbook professional, that would definitely be it. And I think, yeah. I think the biggest thing is when someone wants to do, have helped people informally, informally with cookbook proposals and, you know, they don't realize the, it's like, it's a committee in that room. It's not just the editor who loves the book. That, yeah. that, and that, and that was the hardest part where I would get on board with a book and you have sales, you have the publisher, mm-hmm. you have publicity, all that platform, all sorts of talk. And then suddenly, right. you know, the, the, and sometimes the book you buy becomes a different book that you thought it was going to be. I love cookbooks. It's the first section I go to in physical bookstores mm-hmm. and, um, whether it's my local Barnes and Noble or my independence. Yeah. I just love to see what's out there. So it's a category I love and I love being a part of it. And I think too, in terms of, you know, everything going digital, it's still one of, one of a handful of book categories that people, even though you can Google hundred old fashioned recipes, right. you know, 
you might want to still see that in a book and hear a story about it and look at a beautiful photo and and um that that gives me faith still in that that I like being a part of that so so from going from someone who loved cookbooks obsessed over them to like being a part of that community is a in many different ways help define what I'm all about a lot, I think too. So I love seeing my books behind bars, especially when I go to drink, you know, I love seeing books behind bars in general. And it always gives me a, a little smile when I see one of mine back there. And, yeah. and some, especially if the bartender doesn't know it's me or something. And, I, <laughs> right. and if he, I never reveal myself to the, after I've paid the bill, I always sure. say like, Hey, thanks for having my book. And they're like, Oh, you're the, you're the bitters guy. And yeah. uh, then I do a shot with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Are there particular authors or books that have been really meaningful to you or influential in your career? I mean, truth, the thing about when I, I also, I, w- I worked the cookbook side, but I, I did help with other categories as well. And one of those was literature and fiction. So, uh-huh. so at one point I was reading, you know, multiple galleys a week, novels, sure. memoirs, cookbooks. And I found like as I got older and then suddenly when I, when I worked in publishing, reading was a hundred percent professional. You're reading e-docs, yeah. galleys, right. uh, manuscripts. And it, it's, it, there was the pleasure is taken out of that. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, like, I don't read for pleasure much anymore. So sure. in terms of fiction and things like that. So because I'm usually either it's for research or, or it's, um, peers books or I'm reviewing something. So I would say, you know, I had definitely had my kind of, you know, literary canon things that, that inspired me to want to be a young writer before I knew I was going to write about cooking or spirits. Like people like, 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 uh, Donna Tartt, Michael Shaban, uh-huh. like I just, love their writing and then in the but on the food side you know i love like certain cookbooks um like i love peter Meehan's writing and and and, yeah. and and the books he's worked on and so like the momofuku book especially sure. um i just that was groundbreaking in an interesting way you know like i like it would stop and sort of have a two pages turn over to alan benton and talk about country ham and right it was it was suddenly it didn't have to be cookbooks after like this 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 and you know there's i just got that new uh alpine book it's just oh yeah gorgeous and it's, yes. just, and it's huge and it's and yeah, the jo- meredith erickson and meredith erickson yeah. of course the joe beef books and uh-huh. um so great. i was thinking seeing that creative spin on a cookbook doesn't have to look a certain way right. um and sometimes it can be off-putting um you know i know like i, I saw that the angie marr book is getting uh-huh you know, people like it, but it's also, it's got cigarettes and, uh-huh. and, it's, and yeah. uh, it's, it's a it's, sexy kind of nighttime yeah. book, which, right. which may sum up who she is or something, but I could see people saying, what is this all about? I don't get yeah. it. And so I think it's fun to take chances, but I think to be able to take a chance with a cookbook in this kind of cookbook by committee that I read in the article where she said, like, I was going to take the advance, give the advance back. I want to do the book I want to do. Yeah. So if you have, if you're, if you can afford to do that, that's great. You can make that. Um, one book too, like I'm, I'm friends with them. So I'm a little biased. I became friends with them, but the Lee brothers first book, oh, yeah. um, they spent like five years. Which one was their Lee first brothers one? Southern kitchen. Yeah, that's right. And big, thick, thick book. And I think they spent about five years working on it. And I remember I was at Amazon then. I met them at one of the book expos and we became friendly. That one I just inspired me to just entertain for the sake of entertaining and just not, it wasn't about, you know, they, they really practice a high low thing where, you know, um, they're kind of like if they're wearing a tuxedo. They're going to have red wing boots or, right. or Converse sneakers. And that kind of is how they cook too. Yeah. And I like that where you could do big, deep dive, like make corn cob wine, you know, something right. really funky. Yeah. 
or just bang out their great pimento cheese or do a pork shoulder and then you do it here's what you do with the leftovers and you make carni or carnitas or or tacos and so they inspired me to cook a lot and more than i did and entertain more and just having that having people over like elson roman says now in her new sure. book so we always end with a little game yeah so we've got our, our cards in front of you here I see that we we rely on often so i'm gonna say that you're we're gonna pretend you're a bartender tonight, <laughs> okay okay um even though i know you're not a, you're not a bartender and we're gonna say it's last call and you've only got four ingredients left okay to make a cocktail with okay so for flavor i have cinnamon yeah now we we go a little funny with uh, tofu for protein oh i don't want to do a repick on that yeah asparagus oh my goodness for vegetable and scrapple all right Yeah, cinnamon is super easy. Okay, Cinnamon's cinnamon great. Mm-hmm. Spar- okay, asparagus gets me thinking Bloody Mary garnish, you know, mm-hmm. super- tofu. I've, I don't know if you can actually, I think we could do this. We're going to fat wash uh, <laughs> some bourbon yeah. with right. a scrapple. Uh-huh. I so, like that. so, you know, um, instead of using smoky bacon, um, we're going to put some scrapple in, uh, a nice bourbon and we let the fat accumulate, yep. strain it out. And now we will have this, um, not necessarily smoky, but, funky sure. um vaguely uh meaty uh bourbon uh-huh nice. C- cinnamon's gonna play well with that yep so we can make a nice cinnamon syrup out of that which is one of my favorites like a cinnamon bark syrup okay um just making a simple syrup adding some some cinnamon sticks to it straightening them out so we have this nice kind of spicy aromatic syrup with a meaty bourbon um tofu i wonder what is the is it aquafaba that people the bean the chickpea juice so instead of egg white in drinks, um, okay. people who don't eat eggs. Um, oh right, there's the substitute. It's a chick. It's like the juice from the chickpea can is sort of yeah incorporated to to mimic um, egg white in uh-huh. a drink. I could be very wrong. I'm saying aquafaba, but it's something like that. Okay, yeah. So I'm wondering if we can use tofu juice. Interesting. <laughs> like drain yeah. the tofu. Sure. Um, and so I'm getting, so now I'm thinking whiskey sour, so we could make like, you know, so, so whiskey sour, we'll, we would use the bourbon, some lemon juice, um, instead of sugar, we'll use the cinnamon syrup. And for our egg white element, we'd add this, we'd add, and then we would have a little, um, citrus, so a lemon pop. And then the asparagus yeah. now. <laughs> that takes, that is the, that's definitely the secret that's... ingredient. Um, I mean, at home, I would roast asparagus, uh, Maybe but, it's a bar snack. Oh, Some yeah. I mean, I mean, asparagus. I mean, I don't want to just throw. I just want to say, yeah. That, yeah. I don't want to say it's a garnish, but so right. let's so let's do a scrapple, a cinnamon scrapple whiskey sour. Uh huh. With a uh, well, it's <laughs> vegan friendly, but with a <laughs> <Right>. sweet, no, <laughs> yeah. with a um, egg white esque foam. We do a dry, so we dry shake the tofu, incorporate it into the ingredients, add more ice, shake that up. I like my whiskey sours over ice instead of. Um, in a coop. Sure. And then the asparagus, yeah, like I say, I mean, I wouldn't want candied asparagus or anything like that, but I think, I think like what you're saying, yeah, like maybe we, um, roast it up or crisp it up and put it w- with, um, as a bar snack with, with some other thing. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I know I failed this one because the asparagus, like if I was on chopped, I would, I would, <laughs> I would not have made this. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure if we went a different direction, like Bloody Mary, but I think these, these three, I could kind of figure out, but, um, well, I'm impressed. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much you. for joining us, Brad. This was so much fun. Oh, this is great. Thanks for having me. 
And let's head now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm doing well. Great. So we're here in our drinks week, and we just sat down with Brad Thomas Parsons to talk about his newest book, Last Call. And I'm hoping you have something to share with us. Well, lucky you, because he's such a love. I adore him. Yeah. He's written a couple of previous books Uh that are really highly lauded, uh, Amaro and Bitters. Right. And then a really sweet one called Distillery Cats, which he, not so secretly, but that that's his um, Instagram handle, and he he posts photos of cats from all over the world in, <laughs> right. in distilleries. Right, which I, I love it. Absolutely love. <laughs> so he is really, really highly regarded in the in circles of drink and of bars, uh-huh. and we love whenever he's. In fact, when he's coming to our store for this next event that he's yes. doing, uh, apparently they're bringing a Negroni fountain. Oh, which amazing! I am just totally <laughs> over the moon about. We wow, wait. that sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah, anybody. <laughs> just out there who wants to bring a Negroni <laughs> fountain to any event will work yes. down for it. We'll yeah. host you. Uh, we don't care if nobody comes. Right. Um, so anyway, his new book is so sweet because it's really all about the the sort of last supper, except it's last drink right. that different well-known barkeeps would have for themselves. Right. So it's really nice and smart way to profile these, these bartenders from all over the world and look at their cocktail styles and then see what they reference in their history sure. lessons, what they've learned and then what they want to drink as their last thing, what their favorite drink is, which is really fun. And then of course yeah. it's got the recipes for how to make the drinks. I love that concept because I feel like this can feel like sometimes a cliche question. What what would your last meal be, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that adaptation of it to what would your last drink be, perhaps, yeah. is really interesting. And also, I think it's sort of both questions really do sort of tell you a lot about a person. So That's I love right. to see that. Yeah. And it's just such a good segue into profiling all these different cocktail makers. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you, Celia. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back tomorrow with another story behind the drinks books you love. 